Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Early January's jobs data out of the U.S. showed a smaller-than-expected increase in wage growth and a soft reading on service sector activity for the month of December. The data came just days after the release of December's FOMC minutes, which highlighted that the Fed is on track to keep rates high. But just how high will policy interest rates have to go? And how is Fidelity's global asset allocation team responding to the current economic and monetary policy environment within their multi-asset class funds? To offer his insights on all of this and more, we're joined by Institutional Portfolio Manager Alain Colette. With host Pamela Ritchie, Alain notes that wage growth remains exceptionally robust in Canada and the U.S., which leads to higher prices for goods and services passed on to the consumers. They also discuss inflation's effect on the traditional 60-40 portfolio, with Alain drawing comparisons between 2022 and the 1970s environment. He shares that in the presence of inflated elevation, commodities do well. The Fidelity Inflation-Focused Fund was positioned in commodities throughout 2022, and on the topic of positioning, we'll also get an update from Alon on the Fidelity Managed Portfolios, which includes some defensive positioning currently. Another key takeaway is Alon noting that 2023 is an important year to closely follow central bank communication. More on this and more coming up. Today's podcast was recorded on January 9th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So why don't we just sort of zero in on the wage story there? Uh, Certainly the jobs numbers themselves, everybody pretty much knows that story. What were we looking for in the wages? What were you thinking was important to note about that wage story? Yeah, I mean, this question is absolutely paramount. It's the central question, really, on the driver of inflation and uh, explains in many respects why we have an, a view of inflation that it will remain elevated for a longer period of time. Um, you know, the, the labor market is exceptionally tight, both in Canada and in the US, and that is showing up in elevated readings on wage growth, right? When a, when a labor market is tight, the way you solve that is you pay people more to cross the street and join your firm. And that's what we're that's what we've seen in the data. Now, it is starting to ease a little bit on a monthly basis, but wage growth still remains exceptionally robust, both in Canada and the US. And what that means is firms pass that input price increase on, onto their customers in the form of higher service prices. Now, I, again, I could go on for 25 minutes just about well, this. You, we will talk about it for that long, but um, okay. What do we need to worry about, think about who has gotten to the point of the wage price spiral? Have, has anyone crossed that Rubicon? I mean, country-wise. I yeah, guess. so, I mean, in terms of that wage price spiral, I mean, a lot of people define it differently. So what do we actually know? We know the labor market is exceptionally tight. The way to solve that is with um, stronger wages, right, to incent people to move jobs and fill those positions. That's already happened, so that's a check mark. Um, we know that's translated into elevated service prices, right? Service prices account for about two-thirds or three-quarters of the underlying inflation pie. Um, which is why we should be so concerned about 
uh, elevated wage growth and the tight labor market, and really explains why policy is not in a rush to just pivot or ease and will keep rates you know, at these elevated levels for a, for a significant amount of time until they see progress, meaningful progress, in a loosening in labor market conditioning conditions, which you you know you'd never actually hope for, um, but the reason that's so important it was it, it is because it will reduce the pressure, the upward pressure on wages, which will then reduce the upward pressure on service prices, which again are two thirds or three quarters of that inflation pie, right? So oftentimes we talk about the price of things getting more expensive, right. and that's interesting and and that's important. But it matters much more what we're paying people. It matters, the price of people matters much more than the price of goods. Right. Right. And it's just a smaller part of the economy, the overall story. Exactly. Well. Exactly. So what, let's just go through sort of the basics again of what the central banks can hit, levers they can pull. Um, interest rates is obviously the story in QT in the US as well. Um, how effective has all this been? A lot of discussion about models, a lot of discussion mm -hmm. of what works, what doesn't work. Wade in here for us. Yeah, so this is something we've written on extensively. We've talked about you know, the failure of models and how we use models. The issue with the models that all central banks use is every shock that any advanced economy had in the last uh, 30 or 40 years was really driven by demand shocks, right? And because of that, these models basically removed the supply side of the equation, right? Which is which is unbelievable to think about in today's circumstance because of the, the nature of the COVID shock being a, a giant supply shock. Oh, but we just didn't need them? I mean, was that why they weren't there? Well, I mean, eventually the, the sort of the literature and, and, and the profession just moved away from, okay. from thinking of really uh, rigorously, I think, about, about supply shocks because we just hadn't had any in so long. The problem with that is these models were ill-equipped to handle the type of shock that we got. Right. So sometimes that question gets asked, well, central banks can't really control the supply side. Why, why, why is it up to them to do anything? And I think that's a little bit, um, that question you know, sort of incorrect because the role of the central bank is to equilibrate demand and supply through the interest rate channel, right? So we had this massive supply shock. Uh, the role of the central bank is to uh, effectively uh, increase or decrease interest rates such that demand gets impaired to meet supply so that we don't get this inflation shock that we've had. Now, again, something we've talked about is the inflation shock we had was much larger than anyone expected, not just the central banks, even us. Um, but there was there was a sort of a lack of response um, in terms of timing from central banks globally. Uh, and what that means is, you know, if you're on, if, if interest rates are here and they have to go here, you can take the stairs, which is what you want to do, right? Slow increments. But it, the longer you wait, the more it looks like a, a, an elevator, right? And right. so we've been on that sort of elevator of, of rates higher. Um, and, I, and we expect this year, you know, those rates are going to perhaps push slightly higher and then stay there for a meaningful amount of time until we see the demand side of the economy uh, contract. You know the market doesn't agree with you. Right. Um, the market is expecting at every moment that the pivot is here and that job or that interest rate cuts will be in the offing. Mm -hmm. You know, that actually raises a really good point on how we how we think about models, how we think about the consensus and how we think about uh, positioning in our funds. Right. So what do we do? We manage multi-asset class solutions for Canadian investors. Um, and the way we think about positioning those funds is we think about the consensus view. Then we form our view with 
you know, a fantastic research team uh, and, and, and many other inputs. And the difference between that consensus and our thinking is the positioning, right? right? So for example, right now, we're fairly defensively positioned. Most of that defensiveness is sitting in Canada with a pretty significant underweight to Canadian equities. Um, and you know more more moderate underweights to equities, for example, in the U.S. and 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 in Europe. Um, but you know that that question really highlights the difference between the consensus thinking right. and our positioning. Okay, well then take it forward for for the sixty forty then. The much discussion about it seems like we're past the discussion of is it dead. I mean, I think that was last year's question. Now there seems to be, uh, you know, what's the subtlety on this question? Yeah. So. It's funny because I think every time we talk, I think every answer to every question is always related to inflation. Yeah. Um, and that probably speaks to my background. Uh, but really, the 60-40, is the 60-40 dead question really relates to inflation and inflation volatility. The most damaging effects of inflation is that it erodes the inverse correlation between stocks and bonds, the bedrock of a 60-40 multi-asset class investing uh, framework. And I used to say, you know, the best example of that terrible attribute is the 1970s. Mm -hmm. But another really good example of that terrible attribute is 2022. Wow. Right. Where you really had nowhere to hide in terms of a stock or bond perspective. I mean, unless you owned commodities uh, or cash, you know, you were maybe hurt less. Yeah. Right. And so the goal is with aggressive increases in monetary policy and in borrowing rates, there will be some return to a more normal investing environment, and that will return that inverse correlation to, to multi-asset class portfolios. Mm -hmm. And then we will, we will sort of get a return to normal in terms of, um, of, of sort of multi-asset class investing. So, I mean, the purpose of, of multi-asset class investing is, is sort of this idea of balance, right? Bring, bring that into us. For how is that maybe coming... Is there more clarity on how to get balance at this point, would you say? Right. So the way we think about that is we have a tremendous number of levers that we can we can use or pull in our portfolios to achieve that balance. So, for example, um, over the last year, we were overweight the asset classes that do a good job of hedging against the damaging effects of inflation. Things like, okay. um, you know, on the fixed income side, tips and real return bonds. And on the equity side, commodity equities, right? Commodity producers or the commodities. Again, you know, I did the research in my previous role in, in the presence of elevated inflation or elevated inflation volatility, you want to own anything that rhymes with commodities. Right. And we had meaningful overweights um, to, to commodities in, in our multi-asset class portfolios. And the other thing to mention is at the end of September, 2021, to get my years straight here, yep. We launched the first of its kind in Canada, the Fidelity Inflation Focused Fund. Does that still work? It still works. And again, that shouldn't be that surprising because that inflation focused fund is made up of the asset classes that explicitly protect investors against inflation. So when you launched that, was, was the word transitional still the word of the day? I guess it probably was. Yes, yeah. yeah. So tr transitory was still, transitory, <laughs> it was, yeah. still was still the word of the day. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can joke that the only thing that was transitory was the word transitory. Yeah. Um, eventually, you know, we, we sort of moved, moved away from that. But again, in, in the summer of 2021, there was an entire speech from the Federal Reserve uh, highlighting how inflation was transitory. And again, we never, we didn't believe that then and we don't believe that now. And that's really because of the stickiness of the labor market, of wages and service prices. So I guess if you had meaningful overweights to everything that rhymes with commodities 
that means you also had some real exposure to the US dollar. Yeah, that's right. And so, I mean, sometimes the way that we think about this question is how are we playing defense? Right. Right. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it to my colleagues to use the sports metaphors. That's really not my forte. You but can ski, though, I understand. <laughs> right. That I can do. I can snowboard. But, tell, uh, us, tell us how you do on ice. <laughs> <right>. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but the way we're playing defense right now is, again, we own asset classes. We have overweights to asset classes that protect investors against the damaging effects of inflation. Um, but also, very importantly, we have meaningful underweight to the Canadian dollar, right? With most of that being reflected as an overweight to the, to the U.S. dollar. Again, um, the U.S. dollar is a safe haven currency. Um, it's, you know, it's appreciated measurably over the last little while. Um, and that's been a very, very helpful position. The depreciation of the Canadian dollar and our position in the portfolios has been, has been a meaningful contributor um, so, last year. So if inflation sticks, do you stick with commodities? Therefore, do you stick with US dollar exposure? Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is the question that we're thinking about right now. Uh, sometimes that question is raised, you know, we're, are we past peak inflation? And if we are, right. Are those asset classes still good hedges against against uh, inflation? Um, the way I would think about that right now is even though you know we're perhaps past the peak in terms of a year ago comparison, mm-hmm. inflation at four or five percent can still be exceptionally damaging. Right? Those are numbers that even a few years ago would have been unheard of. Um, and so even though we're we're past that peak that that will get the headlines in the journal or on your Bloomberg screen. Um, elevated inflation for a measurable amount of time just means that central banks cannot pivot right, and cannot move any lower and have to maintain that sort of restrictive policy stance for as long as they need to. Right? So other times that question is, is raised as when will we see rates decline? Right? And we'll see them decline when central banks are confident that they've won that battle on inflation and they've equilibrated um, demand and supply in the economy. Tell us um, a little bit about sort of different types of asset classes. We've heard about alts, for instance, being more useful of late. Um, is that something that you would employ within within your strategy as well? Yeah, so ball, I mean, so the way we think about um, alternative asset classes or the addition of really any building block asset class into the funds that we manage is through uh, diverse diversification and resilience coupled with a lot of research, right? So there is ongoing research. Anytime there's a new capability, whether that be an asset class or even a new underlying building block manager, there's a tremendous amount of due diligence and research that will happen on that strategy or on that asset class um, before we even add it in, 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 you know, in a tiny amount into our portfolios. Now, that's not to say that we don't have that flexibility. If we believe that there is um, a, a a building block or a capability that we want to add in our fund, and it improves the resilience and diversification of our fund, we will do that. But we will do that after, again, the tremendous amount of due diligence and research. Yeah. Well, what about alts then? Because actually they've had a run. So what do you think? Yeah. So again, I mean, our concern, uh, you know, with, with alternative investments, and sometimes this comes up with respect to infrastructure as well, our liquidity concerns and, and stuff like that. So, yeah. you know, it's something that we, we still want to do a, a considerable considerable amount of research on before before we make that uh, decision. So does that sort of roll into your strategy, your approach of how you would 
perhaps add other styles and other managers in and, and then also make decisions of when you're not going to have exposure to that. Just just take us through that. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the way I think about that question sometimes is that growth versus value sort yeah, of discussion. Absolutely. Right. So, um, again, everything comes back to the research. Right. And you never want to be style biased, at least not not in the funds that we, we manage. We don't ever want to have a style bias, hmm. meaning we want to combine managers and asset classes in such a way that the end run for the end investor is smoother over time, right? So we never really want to have a style bias or a geographic bias necessarily. Um, you can imagine, for example, imagine over the last like 10 or 15 years, if you had had a Canada bias instead of a US, uh, you know, and no, no exposure to US large growth. Um, that would have been very costly over time, right? So our goal here is really to combine managers on both the growth and the value side, and really across the spectrum, in such a way to improve the, that resilience and diversification in the funds, and improve the end experience for the for the investor. And this is something um, that we discuss in our uh, in our most recent thought leadership paper. I've read that; it's very good. And something else that's in there is actually why or why not GICs? Can you can you take us through that? Sure. This is outside of inflation. I think this is probably the most popular question it that we were asked in 2022. Lot. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a popular question, right? When it's being asked by family members, mm -hmm. that's really when you know it's uh, it's moved up the ranking. We don't have uh, GICs explicitly in the funds that we manage for Canadian yeah. investors, but we have very similar um, assets, you know, interest-bearing assets like cash that that we have access to, and you know, we we had. And we still do have meaningful overweights to cash in, in for example, our global balance portfolio. Okay. We use that as an example. That's been very, very helpful. That's another way we're playing defense, and it's been additive, additive to performance um, and because of that. So you, know, we, you sort of understand why GICs became so popular last year, given the interest rate environment. Sure. Um, you know, again, we don't, the way we try to manage our funds is we aim to be fully invested. So for us to have a significant cash overweight is a little bit uncharacteristic, but it does speak to our defensive tone uh, in many ways. Does gold fit with things that rhyme with commodities? It's had a funky year, to be honest. Yeah, that's another very popular question mm -hmm. that we get. Um, you know, why sometimes it's phrased as why hasn't gold performed right. well in the presence of maybe that's a better way right. to ask the <laughs> exceptionally exceptionally elevated inflation. You know, that's an asset class where we have literally hundreds of years of data. Um, to show how great it is. Go back to the Romans. Right against performing <laughs> against against elevated inflation. Uh, you know that that historical data set explains why it's eight percent of the inflation focused fund, mm -hmm. right? So it's a strategic large strategic weight in in that fund. Um, we have overweights to gold in our in our multi asset class managed portfolios, um, and you know the way we would th I would think about gold is. It has actually performed in relative space very well in okay. 2022. Right. Right. So, yeah. in Canadian dollar terms, right. uh, you know, gold actually performed very well in 2022 versus the opportunity set that we that we had amongst other asset classes. Now, I know a lot of people are thinking, well, it still didn't do in absolute space what I expected it to do, and that's a valid point. But I would say in relative space. Um, you know, it, it posted a pretty significant positive return right. in Canadian dollars in, in 2022, especially versus other building block asset classes that we uh, have in our funds. Um, let's talk about housing. Um, there's a lot to say here. Uh, 
what do you think? I mean, there, we've actually seen things come off quite quite a lot. The question is always how much further, if there is something further to go. Have interest rates taken the bite, the biggest bite that we're going to see out of the housing market in Canada? Yeah, we don't think so. Not yet. I mean, so monetary policy has what the Bank of Canada calls long and variable lags, right? So it's uns- it's not it shouldn't be surprising to anyone that elevated borrowing rates slow housing market activity. Um, that is the single most effective way to slow housing market activity uh, is to raise the cost of the payments that you know that you make every month. Mm-hmm. Now. Um, our concern is because of the structure of the mortgage market in Canada, which is quite different than the U.S. Because of all the variables. Exactly. Okay. Um, you know, we there is still some more pain that that we need to see, that we are going to see uh, in our expectation this year, and possibly next. It's very hard to to discern the timing of that, mm-hmm. but it's already started. I mean, I think we can all point to um, you know the frothier markets that have that have cooled pretty measurably, but there's more to come in in our view of that. Um, because, because those elevated interest rates are not going away anytime soon. Um, so when I was at the Bank of Canada, then I wrote a research paper on the determinants of housing market cycles, both in Canada and the U.S. What year was that? Two thousand and seven, I think. So what were we doing? Oh, we were just before we were sliding into the. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Um, the single most important determinant of when housing market cycles end and when they begin are changes in the interest rate. Right. So. You, even if you control for income and employment and all sorts of other things, the single most important determinant, unsurprisingly, I think, are the borrowing rates. Right? So people manage the payments, not necessarily the price of the home, similar to when people buy vehicles. Right? Um, and what you've had, I think, and this is, again, something that we've, we've spoken to a lot and, and my colleagues have strong views as well, when you have very, very low interest rates and sort of cheap money, uh, it fuels sort of speculation and, and the wrong sorts of decisions in housing markets, and you get the types of increases that we've had over the last, say, 10 or 15 years. The problem with that, and this kind of comes back to our positioning discussion, is, you know, whereas the U.S. sort of took its medicine post-2008, delevered, Canada sort of skated through the, the financial crisis, maybe the first or second best in the G7, then rates moved much lower, and then Canadians loaded up on debt, not just housing debt. Right, so you know the cars and the ATVs the and, loans, and the personal loans yeah. and the renovations, and now the average Canadian household has a tremendous amount of debt, and that was fine when the cost of service that debt was very low, right? When rates were very low, but now with rates having moved much higher, the debt service ratio, right? So the the cost, the monthly cost in terms of carrying that debt, has moved much higher, and that explains why we think. For example, Canada is going to have a much rougher go of it over the next, you know, 12, 18, 24 months in the U.S. Okay, okay. So that was that was going to be the next question in terms of. So do we get? I mean, there is a discussion that a soft landing seems, in some eyes, to be possible in the U.S. I mean, you'll have your views on that. How different is that for Canada? Is it quite different? It's very different. Yeah. It's very different. It's very different. So, it's not impossible. The U.S. has a soft landing, right? Mm-hmm. So the U.S. is a large, well diversified, resilient economy. Um, diversified across sectors, diversified across geography, and it has a very flexible labor market, which is the nice way of saying it's easier to hire and fire people, right? So if you have an adjustment to make, it's fast. It's very, very fast. Um, in Canada, that's just not the case, right? So Canada, we're not very well diversified across sectors, right? People pull stuff out of the ground and sell it to their neighbors, or we work in finance or housing. 
then that's a bit of a, a bit of a generalization, but um, that's where the tax right. dollars come in from. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the second point is, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to be as resilient and it's going to be a, a tougher ride in Canada because of those debt levels. Right. So that really explains the difference in our positioning. So, you know, in, in the positioning, for example, in our global balance fund, most of our equity underweight is sitting in Canada because of our concerns around the sustainability of the macroeconomic outlook in Canada and what that means for households and discretionary spending um, and recession. Right. Have to, you to use seen the Canadians pull back? For instance, I'm spending some time in the UK. They're very aware that they're in a cost of living crunch, like they're in the darkness, I mm-hmm. would say. Are we there yet? I think to a certain extent that has started, right? I mean, inflation now has become a front page type of story. Um, that was the story of 2022. Um, what I don't think has really happened yet is we haven't really seen a meaningful pullback in discretionary spending as of yet, right? So sometimes that question is asked is, you know, how do we get from elevated interest rates and tons of debt to an actual recession or a pullback? Um, And the way that would happen is, you know, the average household examines its cash flow on a monthly basis and says, look, for this debt, for these things that we bought that we're financing, we have to pay a lot more now. So we're going to trim the fat, right? We're going to, the kids are going to go to one less summer camp. We're going to swap out, you know, a nice restaurant for ordering pizza or we're going out less or we're doing uh, cheaper vacations or you're spending less on apparel. Eventually, that that if you multiply that by 35 million Canadians, that results in a pullback in consumer spending, which is two thirds of Canadian GDP. Right. Um, so that's how you get that that pullback. And then if you layer on top of that a pullback in housing, which has definitely already started and businesses running their inventories a little bit leaner, that's enough to get negative prints on growth and um, dislocation in the job market and a recession. Um, not so long ago, and I can't remember exactly what it was, uh, you would talk quite a lot about interest in EM, interest in sort of looking at the global picture, perhaps other opportunities around the world. Where does that sit today? So right now we have a modest overweight uh, to emerging market equities in, in the portfolios that we manage. Um, and there's a few different reasons for that. So if, we, if you think shorter term in the cyclical horizon, uh, emerging markets were first to enter the pandemic and you know, we're first to sort of exit. Now there's been some sort of policy difficulties in terms of zero COVID policy in China, which appears to be you know, behind us or, 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 or close to behind us now. And that should, be, that should be positive for that region's growth profile. But I like to talk about the longer term view in emerging markets because I think it's a little more interesting. Um, one of the reasons you, you, know, you see a persistent overweight sometimes from us in emerging markets is because of that secular outlook. Right? And so we think about the secular outlook as the intersection of two things, demographics and productivity growth. Right? And so demographics are better in emerging markets than they are in the West. Uh, you know, it, it varies country to country. But I was going to say in China, it's not such, not, not such a clear picture. Not there, such but, a clear picture, yeah. but generally emerging markets are younger than the West. Um, and the second thing is there's tremendous potential for productivity catch-up in a lot of emerging markets, right? And if you intersect the right demographics with productivity growth, you get a lot of potential growth. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you'll, you'll almost always see us with a, a toe dipped into emerging market equities. That's great. Alon, I want to 
tap your incredible research into the wages as a broad picture, the US, Canada, you've spent a lot of time researching this. Finish us out here with sort of what investors might want to be taking a look at with the wage story in particular in Canada and the US. Yeah, so in my view, 2023 is going to be an incredibly important year for us to examine and follow closely uh, central bank communication, right? So I was at a Brookings conference several years ago where Loretta Mester, who is the head of the Cleveland Fed, right. said, um, in, it's more important to think about or to, to follow what central bankers are saying rather than what they're doing. Right, so on Fed Day, on BOC Day, we basically all huddle into the same number because we because they've taken us there on a leash. Yeah. It matters much more what central bankers are saying, you know, in between meetings because that will shade um, their view, right? And right now, right now, there's nothing to suggest in any of the central bank communication uh, to suggest that you know they're they're going to pivot or or reduce rates meaningfully, and that's because. They just don't have convincing signals that inflation has yet moved back towards target. Now they're not going to wait till it gets right to target. I mean, you know, right. we have some we have some runway there, but it will take, I would think, several successive months of cooling wage growth, of cooling service price inflation, for us to know or to have confidence that they've sort of won uh, the battle against inflation. And we're not there yet, um, and we're positioned accordingly. Colette, thank you so much. It's so nice to see you and spend some time with you and have you uh, really give us some, some true insights to how, how you allocate right now. All thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.